Well, with me in studio this morning are Michael McDool, Independent Senator, former Thonishta and Minister for Justice, Justine McCarthy, political correspondent and columnist for the Sunday Times, Mary C. Murphy, Jean Monet Chair in European Integration and Senior Lecturer in Politics at the Department of Government and Politics in UCD. That's a very long title by any standards. Uh, Conal McQuilla, Chief Economist at Davies. And did I mention Dermot Farrison? I think I did, or maybe I didn't. Listen, I'm going to start with you, Dermot. Um, Felt very sorry for our rugby team yesterday. I mean, they were beaten fair and square and all that, but... They were trounced and they were up against an incredibly powerful and brilliant team. Um, It's very difficult this morning to read the word humiliation, which is used a lot, understandably. It's very difficult to look at the photographs of Rory Best, but also to read of Joe Schmidt feeling broken. Yeah. Uh, that's not a word we would normally associate with Joe Schmidt, quite no. the opposite. Um, yeah. We have to put you know, his reign in, in a broader context. It's, it's a very, very difficult way for it to end. He's but, given us a, a great uh, he has, run. Uh, and he made that point yesterday. You know, it doesn't wipe out uh, what he achieved, far from it. You know, when you look at what he was able to do with that team, not just physically, but psychologically. I remember reading Paul O'Connell's book, after he retired and he talked about being quite sceptical about the sports gurus and the psychology. But then Schmidt came in and there was this process of, of trying to get them to think like winners as opposed to trying to get distracted by what it might feel like to win or lose, you know. Yeah. Uh, and to execute a particular plan and to, to win the moment in front of their faces and being very efficient. Um, and he was able to, 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 to marshal them in that way. Into belief, self-belief? Uh, a self-belief, but also... A, thoroughly decent individual who could also be brutal and as he put it himself there's a, there was a brutal transparency in the aftermath of every match and you know the weak points were identified uh, and he brought Irish rugby to heights that it, it hadn't experienced before um, now what they've learned of course over the course of this World Cup is that that's not enough on its own I mean when you put us into that uh, wider sphere uh, you're dealing with another level yeah. but I also do wonder about the wisdom of Schmidt being in the departure lounge for so long. In the sense really? that, yes, that team to me looked quite haunted. They haven't been good over the last year. But 2018 was the great year. Yeah, but yeah. And you mean, if you look at the decision about whether or not to you know, announce your departure date so far in advance, you know, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you do... Uh, you're in the departure lounge for a long time and people know you're going and and that does affect a team and it does affect management. But on the other hand, if you don't announce your intentions, there'll be endless speculation. It'll come up at every press conference and that'll take over as well. So it's a very, very difficult one. But I do think whatever about the uh, physical limitations... Uh, that were exposed, I think there was something psychological going on as well. Right. Anybody else watched the match yesterday? Oh, no, yes. well, can't believe it. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I watched it, but I mean, it was oh, just yeah. uh, it was part time watching. It was difficult. <laughs> it was, it difficult. was difficult. I, 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 I was I, I, trying I, to watch it at work, and yeah. um, I got a text from somebody after, and, and it just got to the heart of it. Hope is a terrible thing, <laughs> 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 and I think our our expectations were artificially inflated. Really. Well, I thought when we were supposed to be seeded one. Now, I don't think I don't, anyone that took was, that. Yeah. Took Especially that after the thrashing we th- took from England in the warm ups yeah. before the World yeah. Cup. 
Anyway, um, sympathies all round, too, all round. I mean, I presume they'll get slaughtered by some of the commentators. Oh, they have already. But But Eaton Bread is soon forgotten. They did give us a heck of a ride for a few years. They deserve great gratitude and great credit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. well, moving on to guess what? Um, We will start uh, with... why don't you start with you, Connell? Uh, you're talking about Think It's All Over, Brexit Could Run for the Next Decade by Colin McCarthy. I mean, what happens from here? Um, well, I suppose what is common across a lot of the coverage today is this, um, I suppose it, people painting Boris's deal as very hard Brexit and people want to talk about, you know, where is the UK going to be in relation to the EU when it finally finishes everything off. And what people don't realise, I think, is that this is only the start of Brexit, unfortunately. It's not the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the UK does leave on November the 1st, the trade negotiations with the EU will start literally weeks afterwards. And they're going to get bogged down pretty quickly in some pretty thorny issues. Fishing rights, for example. Yeah, I heard um, them being guaranteed um, to somebody else yesterday. Yeah. So I suppose Boris Johnson has been talking about a sort of a Canada dry trade deal for some time, which would be the sort of furthest relationship away from the U- EU economy and um, what is surprising, actually, in the um, transition period was that he actually signed up, at least in the political declaration, to these level playing field arrangements, which is effectively saying you have a very close uh, relationship with the EU. And I suppose the cynical view would be that would allow him to say to the ERG group, we're going to have, it's only in the political declaration, it's not worth the paper it's written on, but at the same time reach across the aisle to the Labour MPs and say, well, we are going to aim for a close relationship. Right. And it just sort of, I think it's a preview of where we're going. We're going to have these very difficult trade negotiations and unfortunately we'll be here in a year's time. And there'll be trade-offs. Absolutely. So, you know, a concession to say French wine producers um, isn't much good to Ireland. Um, You know, in terms of uh, Dan O'Brien today is talking about beef trade. If the UK does have trade deal on beef and allows zero tariff on beef, does that mean people in Dublin can trade, go over the border and buy cheaper beef? Well, maybe, maybe not. There's still that regulatory issue you can't have, uh, you know, gra- you know right. hormone-fed beef yeah. and so forth. Um, but it just sort of shows you we're at the start of this process. The really, we've been talking about the border, we've been talking about uh, Stormont, uh, but really the really sort of difficult issues to and trade. And stuff that's really going to, to cause fierce damage to a lot of our industries. Mary? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's 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 the start of, of a very difficult period ahead. And I think what's been quite interesting in all of this is that Boris Johnson, as Prime Minister, um, is actually focused on a, a, a free trade Britain, you know, low taxes, low regulation. Yeah. Um, he's not a, a fan of the welfare state. Um, and all of that will be in play during those trade negotiations. Um, But Brexit and all that we've been focusing on, the minutiae of the Brexit negotiation process, is concealing all of that in a way. I suppose the notion of any kind of infrastructure on the border, even though I think it only accounts for 1% of our trade, politically and piecewise and all that, was very important on the island. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, people have forgotten the everybody in the dairy industry and the mm-hmm. agri-food and all that, they have it all coming down the track at them. Yeah, absolutely, because although the deal that's currently on the table negotiated between Varadkar and Johnson um, does remove the hard border on the island of Ireland, there is still a border between Ireland and the UK, the rest of the UK, effectively. And that comes with pretty potentially pretty stringent economic... Um, Consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so this... 
this is the start. Um, I mean, we have a cushion at the moment in terms of a transition period before anything changes dramatically or radically. But once those trade negotiations start and once the sort of the framework of a future trading deal becomes clear, that's when Ireland will really feel the consequences. And um, if Boris Johnson is a sign of what's to come, then those consequences could be potentially um, very serious for Irish producers and for trade in general. Well, I mean, I think one of the things looking at um, uh, television yesterday and watching the House of Commons, one of the things that came across was the absolute collapse of trust in Boris mm. Johnson personally. I mean, the DUP uh, felt completely gutted by him. Uh, you know, they were supposed to be the canary in the mine and they ended up being the roast can stuffed canary on the front, on the, on the, on the, on the ERG's uh, plate. Um, the... Uh, you know, various Labour MPs saying to him, you've said one thing to the ERG, you're saying another thing to us now that workers' rights are going to be protected but you're going to destroy all regulation when you're talking to the ERG. Who, when are you telling the truth? And um, again, there's a trust issue with uh, Johnson. He went to Brussels and told uh, the, um, the European uh, Council that he was confident he had the numbers. And he didn't have the numbers, and he hadn't... Well, he it. probably thought he had the DUP. Well, how could he possibly have thought that, uh, given that he had stood up at their conference and said there will be no, nothing like a border down the middle of the Irish Sea, no English Prime Minister could ever deliver that, and it won't happen if I'm Prime Minister. He said all those things to him, and they're staring at him across the, across the Commons. Uh, uh, so trust is, is, is a really big problem. And uh, now we're looking at the situation and going back to Connell's point, uh, he says on the one hand, you know, when he's in poetry mode, he says, you know, Britain is a buccaneering uh, state and it's going to do great things across the whole global world and all the rest of it. And on the other hand, he signs a political declaration with the Europeans saying he's going to align everything as closely as possible to, to, their, to, 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 to their arrangements. Uh, He's not a person to be trusted. That's the Justine? Thing. I'm not sure that Westminster's level of trust in Boris Johnson is as relevant as, as it should be. <laughs> um, I think the fact that he probably has the uh, other 27 leaders um, thinking along the same lines as he is, is, is more relevant at this stage. Um, he has said that he's not going to negotiate an extension and he has made that clear by sending the unsigned letter. Um, Emmanuel Macron has made it clear that he doesn't want an extension. Um, I think well, I think a lot of people are Brexit weary. Yes. But that's very dangerous because we forget how important it is yes. and we have to get it right well, people as right as Brexit we can. People are Brexit weary, but people also recognise that this has shifted significantly now. There is a deal on the table and this deal is not likely to be revisited like the last one was. So it's a matter of timing now. And the big question is, can Westminster uh, get the legislation through by the 31st of October in order, in order for... It's a lot of legislation, Mike. It is a lot of legislation, but I'm it's told it is actually possible. Place. Now, it depends on, on the tactics adopted mm. by uh, the opposition. Right. Um, over the coming week, which which makes what's going to happen. Well, what we're also going to have, have to deal with is there's been very significant damage done uh, 
to Anglo-Irish relations, but also to North-South relations. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, you could quite legitimately say that the DUP are the architects of their own misfortune because mm-hmm. they never really resolved the complete contradiction in their position around Brexit. In which what was sense? That they said emphatically, we want a seamless border, but they also said in the same breath that we want to be treated no differently to the rest of the UK. They are not compatible. They never were compatible. And the DUP overplayed... Uh, its hand and was always going to be betrayed by Johnson Is for the one very not reasons. tempted if you're in a position to use your leverage for yeah. your ends? Yes, but they weren't just about the DUP's ends or they shouldn't have been just about the DUP's ends they should have been about the welfare of Northern Ireland uh, and their own you know, their own status, the future of unionism. I mean, the union is under strain not just in relation to the Irish complication Scottish nationalists are looking at all of this very, very closely. Mm-hmm. Scottish opinion polls now would put support for independence at 50%. Still a hugely divisive issue uh, yeah. in, in, in Scotland. But the union is under more strain now than it has ever been. Um, so, you know, the, the DUP dilemma is part of a wider uh, strain on the yeah. union. But long term on the island of Ireland we've got to we've got to make friends up there again. Absolutely. You know we're really talking about do. the challenge after yeah. this whatever yeah. ever about all the yeah. trade challenges and the technical yeah. challenges and dealing with a, a British Prime Minister who is not to be trusted. You know we have to that's a fragile flower we're talking about there. Right. But and politically and we to need to make friends again but I think on, on a, a human level there is a sense among a considerable number of unionist voters that the government in Dublin has been more concerned about their interests than the DUP has been. Well, I mean, I was reading in one of the articles today, I can't remember which, that a lot of UUP feel that they've... Well, I know that they're going through a bad phase, but they still account for 30% uh, of, of the vote, and you just wonder if proper respect were paid, mind you... Everybody has said they didn't want a border um, mm-hmm. on the border, uh, so to speak. Now, I gather that Keir Starmer is asking the DUP to talk to the Labour Party about um, a second referendum. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. one problem with that, Marion, and that is the two words, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, the, the, the DUP know full well that Jeremy Corbyn is probably... Uh, um, more more pro United Ireland than um, Jerry Adams. <laughs> it's it's uh, they, I think that that's probably going to go nowhere. Right. To, to, to go back to one point though that, that, that Justine was making, I agree with the, with Justine that the, that the, the the rest of the EU is sick of all of this and they they don't want to prolong this uh, too much. But if it if it ends up a choice between no deal and prolongation, in the end they will go for 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 prolongation. They will not they will not allow right. the UK to slip out on that basis. And therefore the real question question is, can Boris, between now and the end of October, get a majority of the people in the House of Commons to pass some kind of resolution? But remember, if it's the legislation that has to go through, it has to go through two houses, firstly, and uh, the House of Lords is 90% remainer. I think the DUP are malleable as well on this question of a future referendum. I mean, the DUP, I think and what we fail to understand on this side of the border sometimes is for the DUP, the only thing that matters is the union. Yeah. You know, that, that is the only yeah. thing. Identity. And yeah. everything, absolutely everything is secondary to that. And I would, I would suspect that if it requires a U-turn and for the DUP to now propose staying in the European Union in order to safeguard the union, I think they would have the capacity... Um, to make that kind of a decision. And they had to a point already uh, uh, made 
a shift. Mm -hmm. Exactly. A year ago, Arlene Foster mm -hmm. was talking about blood red lines, which yeah. was a terrible use of language. Yeah. But it's exactly a year ago. And the blood red line was there will be no border in the Irish Sea. And I, I heard it being referred to during the week as, oh, it's not a border in the Irish Sea, it's a filter uh, in the Irish Sea. Language uh, matters. Language does matter. sure matters. Well, let's have a listen to Theresa May yesterday because like, it was interesting to see her come in and take up her position and what would she do uh, with those that essentially savaged her? Is that not too strong a word? Let's have a listen to this. I hope the whole house will forgive me if I say that standing here I have a distinct sense of deja vu. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I intend to rebel against all of those who don't want to vote to deliver Brexit. <laughs> when the two main parties represented in this house stood on manifestos in the 2017 general election to deliver Brexit. Yeah. Did we really yeah. mean it? And that is the great question, because you do feel, as you observe behaviour in the House of Parliament, that the House itself is not Brexiteer. No, it's not. It's Remainer. Uh, mm. I mean, the majority of MPs are, were pro-Remain supporters. But um, it, it, her, her point is correct, uh, Theresa Mays, when she says that uh, that they, two major parties both said, right, we accept the result in 2017. Yeah. But let's remember what happened in 2017. That election was called because she broke trust. Mm -hmm. She said there's going to be no snap mm -hmm. election. And when she saw Jeremy Corbyn looking very weak and, and vulnerable, uh, her advisers in Downing Street said, go for it and she ended up in the hands of the DUP uh, so sympathy is uh, um, a but bit whatever wasted about the, the difficulties that Johnson has now in terms of numbers this question of the Remain Parliament what goes outside or what goes on outside of Parliament it's quite clear that Johnson has a very good chance with the yes, general election of romping home and he will play this idea that I am standing for you the people against this Remain Parliament well which to is a certain extent He's absolutely right. I mean, we, we were used to referendums here and they can be very divisive and we can't end up talking about all sorts of things that aren't relevant. But if you win, as the last divorce referendum was by a whisker, that's it. The, the, the leavers won. And you find that you sense there's a resentment that they did that. But, but I, I think part of the problem in all of this is what people were voting for was so utterly unclear at the time. I mean, there was no talk of customs unions or single markets or, or free the border movement. in Ireland. Or the but border one, in Ireland, one absolutely. The, one of the so. points here is that we sort of come full circle. What you may see over the next week or two is an amendment to attach a confirmatory referendum to Boris mm -hmm. Johnson's deal. And the rebel MPs who were let, lost the party whip they may well vote for that. The DUP may well end up voting for that referendum as well. And, of course, that brings us on to the future relationship. If we do indeed leave on November the 1st, um, the closer that relationship with the EU is, the more easy these issues north-south and east-west uh, become. And I think what we may see, and we're already beginning to see uh, the industry groups get their retaliation in first. Mm. Uh, you know, there is no great benefit to doing some great trade deal with the United States or the Anglosphere and so on and so forth. Each sector will say, we want to align with the EU. And if you take the hysteria out of the debate, if the, I don't think the man in the street, particularly in the UK, might want to leave the EU, but in terms of the single market, that's not really for him. So we might still get that close relationship driven by business and by trying to sort of minimise these frictions 
both between the EU and the UK, but between North, South and Ireland. And there's another bit. What would the referendum question be? Mm. If, if the referendum was, mm. do you want Boris Johnson's deal or do you want to remain? Mm. Uh, I mean, for instance, the DUP would flip on that and they'd say, we want mm. to remain rather than Boris Johnson's deal. Well, they might uh, and they mightn't. Anyway, we're going to be talking to Andrew Bridgen, who is um, a pro-Brexit uh, Conservative MP, and we'll be talking to him after the break. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme. Now with us in studio this morning, Conor McKilla, um, Dermot Ferreter, Mary C. Murphy, Justine McCarthy and uh, Michael McDool. And we are going now to Andrew Bridgen, uh, pro-Brexit Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire and leading member of the Brexit Supporting uh, European Research Group. Uh, let me go to you, if I may. Uh, first of all, you were actually physically there uh, yesterday. What was the atmosphere like? Um, there was a lot of expectation and a certain amount of dread. Um, I think the result of the vote on the Letwin Amendment was pretty much expected. We've we've lost those votes um, before. Uh, Notably, last time was Thursday when they again seized control of the all the paper, the Rebel Alliance. Um, I think deflation and the feeling in the country is they really wanted this to happen. It's a, a tolerable deal. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I was willing to support it um, with some reservations. And I think there's just a feeling in the country that we've missed an opportunity to end the paralysis of the damage to our democracy, the damage to our parliament that's been going on for far too long. If um, you take what happened yesterday, um, were you surprised uh, that the government didn't plough ahead? Because, as I understand, they thought they had the numbers just to go on the deal. Yes, but um, if, they, if they'd done that, that then attaches the Letwin Amendment uh, and potentially was more more damaging to the government to do that. I think they're going to bring it back, try and bring it back next week uh, and have a, hopefully a clean vote on it. Obviously, the, the Speaker's um, not impartial in this. He may say that... He may assert so, yeah. He may say we've already had one vote on this in this session of Parliament and he may well be lobbied by those who don't wish the deal to go through to, uh, to um, refuse permission for the government to bring that forward. I mean, that, that, that um, motion uh, on Saturday should not have had any amendments uh, accepted. They were accepted at the discretion of the Speaker. Uh, there were two. There was the well, why amendment. should they not? The re- I'm sorry, well, beg your pardon. Why well, should they not? Well, because under the Fixed Term Parliament Act, we can't have a general election, although we are a majority of minus 44 in the Parliament. Um, Normally, uh, amendments to government business would be, uh, some would be allowed on the basis that the government is the government and has a majority. We don't have a majority. We're in this perverse situation where we're, we're in government but not in power. And so by allowing amendments to government motions, it, it could have been voted down, it could have been voted through. But by allowing those amendments, it's, it's really disadvantaging the government when we're on a majority of minus 44. We're, we're effectively, say, in, in, in government but we're not in power. Um, this is, again, it's an anachronism of the um, 
of a fixed-term parliament act, which should have been got rid of in 2015 when we ceased to be in coalition with the Liberal Democrats. I would just like to pick up on one of your con- contributors said that the, Surely. the deci- decision in the referendum in 2016 was, was won by a whisker. Uh, to put that into context, it was a majority of 1.3 million votes. Oh, sorry, excuse me, please. That was I who said that. Mm. And I was referring to a referendum that had taken place in Ireland some years ago, ah, which sorry. truly was by a whisker. It was a matter of thousands of It was also votes. about divorce. Yeah. And it was about divorce as well, <laughs> yes. Sorry. Um, so, so I think it's going to be an interesting week next week. Um, you've seen the Prime Minister's response to the Ben Act. And yes. He's, he's uh, basically sent a photocopy of the uh, of the script that he was ordered by Parliament to send, uh, but he has sent two. Well, he sent another letter. Um, the problem is that the Speaker, who's been absolutely key in the way this has played out, he's going a week on Thursday, and um, he'll want to go with a bang. So it's going to be very, very difficult to get this deal through before the 31st of October, unfortunately. It's, it's interesting to, to watch matters and to see how people are chosen to speak in debates and mm. which amendments uh, are permitted and are not. Now, he would say he's even-handed, but as an outsider, it would appear to give him an awful lot of power and influence. It does. Um, I was one of the most prolific speakers in uh, Parliament, speaking nearly every day. Uh, my relationship with the Speaker has deteriorated from uh, antipathy to animosity to pretty much open hatred. Uh, I've criticised him in the media and the press, and it's pointless me going into the chamber because he won't call me. So um, the voice of North West Leicestershire has been pretty much silenced in the chamber for the last four weeks. Um, I've put in for urgent questions. I've been an MP for 10 years. I've put in for urgent questions. I've never had one accepted. Um, whereas his favourites and those who have political leanings aligned with him have probably never had one refused. I put in for an SO24 debate a couple of weeks ago asking that the, we, you know, the situation we're in is because of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. I asked for an emergency debate, debate on, on revoking the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. That was refused. But obviously uh, those who were seeking to frustrate... Uh, the will of the British people of leaving the European Union, uh, their uh, SO24 debate, emergency debates were accepted. If you take uh, the consequences of the fixed-term Parliament Act, which means that the, each Parliament has to go full session, um, is there any, how are you going to get to an election? Because there is a perception now that Boris Johnson would sweep in. And that makes an election more unlikely. Under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, the Prime Minister does not move, does not have the ability to dissolve Parliament and call a general election, which would happen in every other situation where we've lost our majority, because we actually can't govern. Um, but everything that the Labour Party have done in trying to frustrate Brexit, I believe, has dropped them further in the polls, which makes it less likely that we're ever going to get a majority of two-thirds of all MPs, not even two-thirds of MPs who vote, but two-thirds of MPs who could vote, the total number of MPs we have has to vote for a general election uh, under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. One way round that is to bring in uh, a one-line bill which uh, basically would ignore the Fixed-Term Parliament Act and say this part, we should have a general election. But again, at the moment, we, we don't have the 320 MPs to, uh, to get that across the line. That would only need a simple majority of one. 
50% plus one. However, I do think that um, the SNP themselves are not keen on a second referendum, ultimately. And the reason for that is if they were ever in a position where they got uh, an independence vote in Scotland, if they'd set the precedent of having multiple referendums on that, it's highly likely it would cause them problems in the future. So they've got one eye on that. They've also got an eye on that uh, Alex Salmond, their former... Uh, leader in the House of Commons and the First Minister of Scotland is involved in a uh, a, uh, a very interesting legal case which will come in January. Right, which I we won't go be a lot, into. A lot, of, yes. a lot of political fallout from that for the SNP and wider implications. I think they'd, they'd rather like to have a general election before that um, goes that, that because, yeah. Let me come back to uh, the studio here. And I mean, we were all, well, many, many people were absolutely glued uh, to the television yesterday, Michael McDowell. You, uh, independent senator now, your former Thonishta and former minister, and watching how um, the speaker chooses who's to speak and all of that. As somebody that might have wanted to speak more, though you were lucky enough to be on the front bench for, for so long, does it strike you as an odd system? Well, um, sometimes I think uh, it is very, very subjective. Um, um, and in Ireland, the opposite situation applies. And the party whips, when I was in the Dáil, used to determine who spoke. And if you were out of favour with the party whips, you just simply didn't get on your feet at all. So uh, that shows you the opposite system. Right. There was a very good story of, of, a, of a backbench uh, MP who uh, went to one of uh, Burko's predecessors and said, I, I really am very disappointed. He said, you know, I, 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 um, I've been up and down all, all the time this afternoon and uh, I never caught your eye. And uh, I had a really good uh, speech prepared. And he said, you're doubly unfortunate uh, that uh, you didn't catch my eye and that you had a really good speech prepared because this was the only occasion you'd have anything decent to say in the house. <laughs> <laughs> the great insult was put to him. But, uh, uh, but on a serious point, uh, the Speaker of the, in, in the House of Commons has huge, has huge influence over, yeah. uh, as we are now seeing now. And um, one point I just want to make about the, the simple solution of the, of the bill to repeal the fixed-term parliament, yes. that, that has to go to the House of Lords too, where there's a Remain majority. So I don't know, it would take some time, I'd imagine. Right. Um, how, how do you see things moving on, Andrew Bridgen? I can hear the frustration uh, in your voice. I mean, if the House, the, the Commons, and if the other House are both pro-Remain, how do you move on? I think that we will get eventually the SNP to join with us and vote for a general election. That may be after, after the 31st of October when we've either left or extend because of the unwillingness of this Parliament, which is dominated by Remain MPs in contrast to the country, to push through this tolerable deal by uh, Boris Johnson. Um, and I honestly believe that the European Union are now completely frustrated uh, with the situation we find ourselves. And I think that will force us to a, to a general election. And I think Labour MPs who uh, are running away from the electorate, uh, which is amazing that you'd offer, uh, perhaps offered twice a general election, which the opposition have refused, having called for one every day for two years. The longer they run away, the more they'll be punished at the polls when we eventually uh, get there, which is, is, is inevitable. You, you know, at the end of the day, we're all going to be held accountable for what we say, what we do, and the way we've voted 
since the last general election in 2017 by our electorate and there's a lot of frustration. The frustration in my voice is only actually the frustration of my constituents and I believe the country over here as a whole uh, with our parliament. At times I've actually been ashamed to be a member of parliament over the shenanigans that have gone on over the last uh, few months. It's, it's been particularly unedifying. And coming back to the speaker, I, he, he's finishing um, the next uh, the week after yeah. next. Uh, we're going to have a, an election of a new speaker on the 4th of November. Um, it'll all be one, done in one day. I think that um, the power of the speaker has become very evident and there will now be, it relies on his impartiality and being very, very honourable and fair. And I'm afraid that I think there'll be a clampdown on the rules and uh, the powers of the next speaker right. based on the performance of John Burke. Yeah, though as I, I heard him on recently uh, being interviewed and he said absolutely even-handed, absolutely even-handed. <laughs> but um, Well, you only have to watch the videos, yeah. don't you, to see the way he's, he's outbursts. Be- before um, I let you go, what was your view of the, how the DUP uh, were treated? They were they were given certain commitments uh, for their votes, obviously, and they had the support um, of your grouping, I believe, as well. And then at the last minute, Brexit became more important uh, than the commitment to the union. Well, the, the whole of the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland, will be leaving on the 31st of um, October. Under Boris Johnson's deal, if we get it through, um, Northern Ireland will stay in the single market for manufactured goods and agri-foods, which prevents the need for uh, any checks on the border. And they'll, be, um, they'll, they'll synchronise VAT with... Uh, That's not the their view of, of it, though. But we, but we, well, the, the problem for the problem for the DUP, which they've explained to me, and I do have a lot of sympathy, is that because those rules relating to a a small fraction of the Northern Ireland economy will be made in Brussels without any input from the UK, that the lobbyists who for those industries will be looking to Dublin for representation rather than than London. But I mean, all these matters can be dealt with by a free trade agreement. Um, which I think we'll get um, very quickly with the European Union and we'll, and we'll be running free trade agreement talks with the United States in parallel, which I think will, will focus minds on, on right. where we're going. Um, but we haven't thrown the DUP under the bus. I've got the greatest respect for them. They, but they haven't got on this bus. And uh, someone emailed me as a DUP supporter. From, I suppose from if you said, feel like you've been thrown under the bus, it, it matters to... I think he quite rightly said that um, this is a DUP supporter who contacted me a few days ago that the DUP aren't always right, but they are defenders of the union. They're staunch defenders of, of the union, quite rightly. But, you know, often it's been the voice of Ulster says no. Well, I'm, I think on this occasion it's going to be Northern Ireland says yes. Connell, you wanted to come in there. Well, it's interesting to hear Andrew Britton say we're going to potentially have a very quick trade deal. I think Stephen Barclay himself has already suggested the transition period might last until 2022. And, of course, if the UK does want to diverge, that's going to make it much more difficult In to conclude that trade deal because the more you want your own fishing rights, you want your own standards for various industries, that's just going to prolong the negotiations year after year. And you think of Canada itself, you know, it took over five, six years to negotiate. So Seven years. Seven years. So, again, you know, you listen to this, you know, there's been a lot of sort of aspirational 
talk about Brexit and what it might achieve for the but, UK. But a very quick trade deal, I find it very hard to believe is going to happen anytime soon, unless the UK is prepared, as most of its industries believe in their industry bodies, that they should be aligning with the EU. That appears to be on the face of it in the political declaration, perhaps. And you can tell me whether the sentiments expressed in the political declaration around um, a level playing field are actually um, true. Well, what we'll have is the same deal that Canada's got, where it's not, we're not, Canada are not under EU regulations and rules. They have mutual recognition of standards. Um, but we have a lot of cards to play during, once we get out, we have a lot of cards back uh, to play during those trade negotiations. They'll be tough. But at the end of the day, we can, we can run uh, parallel negotiations with the EU and the United States. Uh, no deal's back on the table if we don't believe that the EU are, are playing... Uh, negotiating in good faith. We can leave at any time with no deal. Um, and as far as the £39 billion pounds, uh, is concerned, yeah. the so-called divorce bill, if we, we don't get a satisfactory free trade agreement um, or and we have to leave during the negotiations, we'll only be paying the legal minimum of the £39 billion Basically, our bar well, bill as what, we leave. What I was and, hoping... And let's, and, let, and, let's, and let's bear in mind as well, if, if, if the Americans do a deal with us in six months, that will put a lot of pressure on the European Union. Trump says he'll do a, a free trade deal with us in, in six months. Let's say that's 12 months. OK, can't well, well, we want to come back in there. The well, what I was hoping Andrew would tell us is that in the political declaration, uh, it says that the UK will abide by state aid or minimum level playing field provisions and state aid, tax, uh, welfare... Uh, environmental standards. Uh, that's what's in the political declaration that uh, Boris has brought forward. So if you could just tell us that the Conservative Party is in favour of those things, because if they are, that means rather close alignment with the EU, which hasn't been the message uh, that we've heard so far. Um, well, everybody knows that uh, we're, not, we're not looking for close, we're close alignment on standards. I mean, our standards in, in industry, the environment... Uh, tax, and welfare, labour law... Environmental standards, that's what's in the... Not, we're certainly not going to give... Well, that's a bit rich from um, from the Republic of Ireland. Where it's yours, it's your political declaration. 12.5%. I'm just asking you, Andrew, is, what you, is what's in the political declaration true? Is the UK going to have levels playing field provisions on tax, environment, welfare... All those things that which Boris Johnson has brought in the political well, in case, is it in true? Case, in, that ca in that case, we'd have to lower all our standards to EU levels because maternity. Yes, we are. We'd have, yeah, but our, our maternity. Well, if we want to, if people. Well, I'm just asking if it's true, Andrew. It's a very well, simple well, question. We, we, we can't, we, we, no, no, we can't because we'd have to halve. It's, it's a very simple question, Andrew. Is what's in the political declaration true on these issues? We would have to halve. We'd have to halve our maternity leave in our country because it's twice that the EU. Uh, declared minimum. So we'd have to, if, if you want a level playing field, people don't want that. Well, can they you to, answer make, the question that was asked just straight? Does that still apply? We're not going to sign up that we are not going to diverge from the European Union. We're not going to do that. That's you're not, not going to sign not. up that you're not going to diverge. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, yes. Can, can yeah. I just make a we point? Will, we will diverge. 
Andrew, Andrew, can but that I, doesn't mean we'll have lower standards. Okay, and, let me come to Andrew, Mike can, and can, 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 I, can I make this point here? Firstly, I mean, uh, as I understand it, uh, you have just said that uh, if the um, negotiations for a future trading relationship f- uh, don't go satisfactorily, um, there is always the uh, n- um, no-deal exit av- available. Doesn't that prove conclusively that the Republic was correct in saying uh, that it, it had to be in the withdrawal agreement that uh, that uh, that um, whatever deal was done between um, uh, the UK and the EU, that the situation in Ireland would not would not deteriorate. Uh, and I, I, I mean, what you're really saying, Andrew, is that you have this card to play, that if things don't go your way in these trade negotiations, you'll walk away with no deal. That would be disastrous for Ireland. And that's why, that's well, why, we, that's why we wanted a backstop. Yeah, and if I reversed the argument, you'd have put us, if, we, if we'd signed up to Theresa May's deal with the backstop, you'd have put the UK in a position where unless we agreed to everything the EU wanted, we would have been in the backstop potentially forever. And that's why the EU... That was intolerable. Yeah, that's why the EU at the very beginning said it should be a Northern Ireland-only solution. And uh, Theresa May put down a red line saying that that couldn't be the case because it endangered the Union. Okay, let me bring in some of our callers. A texture says, Andrew Bridgen is showing how much dislike, dissension and distrust exists within, quote, that place. Uh, I presume he means the UK Parliament, yes. I presumed that he did too. Marion, watching the Principal Theresa May yesterday on TV, since she stepped down as the British Prime Minister, she looks healthier, happier, more confident (laughs) and 10 years younger. Chairing the Brexit debate is not good for one's health. And another one says, none of you have mentioned the million people on the march yesterday and in fairness, there really was a huge turnout. And Marion, it's very possible that Boris Johnson would win a majority in a general election with as little as 33% of the popular vote. A substantial part of the British mess is caused by this appalling electoral system. Huge numbers of voters might as well not vote at all. Well, look at people complain about Trump. Trump won under the United States rules. So until they change their rules, that is their system. And similarly, first past the post uh, is chosen by our neighbours across the water. Anyway, hazard a guess. How long is this going to go on, Andrew? How long is it going to go on? Um, Well, we'll either get out with this deal, but I'm... The problem is, without having the withdrawal agreement passed by Parliament, with the withdrawal bill itself is brought through next week, because it doesn't have that uh, mandate from Parliament aligned with the deal that Boris Johnson has done, it can be amended immensely. So I think next week we're going to face uh, calls for a full customs union, possibly single market, and lots of other things can be... Possibly a referendum, yes. We're going to have to fight all those battles again. It is a new session of Parliament, so undoubtedly the Speaker's going to allow them. And I just think we're going to be bogged down in that. Uh, and also, this is, these are because of widening of the debate, uh, there'll be demands for a lot of parliamentary time, right. which we don't have between now and the 31st of um, October, do we? 
No, indeed. Listen, many, many thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. That was Andrew Bridgen, pro-Brexit, Conservative MP and member of the European Research Group. Now, I'm going to move along to politics on this side uh, of the water and there are all sorts of uh, suggestions that there might be an early election, um, that there might be pressure put on Leo Varadkar to go with his bounds, etc., uh, Justine, let me come to you first, though, on the voting thing on Timmy Dooley's. And this is the story about how on Thursday afternoon in the Dole, um, six votes were registered in uh, Timmy Dooley's name yeah. um, electronically, um, even though he wasn't in the chamber. And it it has transpired that his party colleague, Niall Colli- uh, Collins, Um, press the button each time for him. Um, Timmy Dooley has said that when he did go to the chamber when the voting bells rang and he got a phone call and left the chamber and that Niall Collins thought that he, Timmy Dooley, was at the back of the chamber on the phone and therefore kindly pressed the button for him. Um, But it was quite a long time and the video uh, footage shows that uh, Timmy Dooley did come in. He spoke to an official from the uh, Dole Clark's office. Yeah. Then walked over to Niall Collins, said something briefly to him and left again and didn't return uh, for the duration of the voting. Um, There are... I I was reading an account implying that this Mm -hmm. goes on all the time. There is some innuendo that this has happened before and it's not unusual. Um, I see you nodding, dear. Well, it's very hard uh, to believe that it doesn't happen Mm -hmm. a lot. And there's an interesting Now, you could tell us actually. I I tell you what, on occasions in the Shannon, you'd have somebody uh, sitting four four seats away from you talking to somebody and he'd say, Michael, will you press my button, right? (laughs) That kind of thing would happen. Or, Michael, Uh, get off your phone. I mean, isn't that the other thing? I mean, these people are constantly on their phones. But but, but, but they uh, should uh, be concentrating on the order of business. Yeah. Well, well, I'm just just saying that... uh, that uh, that might happen, and it's not supposed to happen, and it's wrong. You're supposed to sit. But in your, it does. You're happen. supposed to sit in you're your designated You're telling me it does speech. happen. It does happen. Yeah, but, uh, but uh, and uh, that's the truth of it. Uh, yeah, that people say. Well, do you just not press need a button. pair? No, no. This is this is just when you're when when you're sitting in the chamber. Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, that 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 you uh, and you're having a conversation with somebody four seats away. Instead of running up and pushing everybody out of the way, you just say, "Would you press my button?" Yeah. Uh, that that does happen. Sometimes. Is that a crime? It's, but it's against the rules. The complaint that Noel Rock has made uh, to the Cairncourla is that this is a possible breach of the um, Ethics in, in Public Office yeah. uh, Act. Um, but Fine Gael was certainly ramping up the pressure on Fianna Fáil yesterday. Um, Noel Rock made a statement. Martin Hayden, the chairman of the party, of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, uh, issued a statement with 12 questions that he wants, not just uh, deputies Dooley and Collins to answer, but Fianna Fáil and bringing Michal Martin into the equation. Is this grandstanding? I think this is all part of an atmosphere now that is evolving, which would be conducive to a calling a general election and possibly giving Leo Varadkar uh, a justification for calling a general election at this stage. Well, there's all the speculation it's about the date, but what are you looking at? 
in the eventuality of an election. There's a behaviour and attitude uh, poll in the Sunday the Times Sunday today. Jones, yes. And you're looking at Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, 29-28. Aren't we really looking at Tweedledum and Tweedledee here, you know? So there'll be an awful lot of coverage of potential dates and speculation and election favour. Yeah. But that's what you're looking at. I mean, we're not really looking at there being a, a, a great shift in the balance of power. Right. Um, I just remember Maura Gagan Quinn on one occasion saying if she had to go up small boreens on dark nights in the month of November, she wouldn't be pleased. Well, I mean, winter elections are, are not very pleasant, but remember one thing, Marion, there are four by-elections coming up. Oh, this is and, true. And Fine Gael look as if they are likely to lose three, if not four of them, okay. which is not so good for them. And uh, if you then put in the winter vomiting bug in the hospitals in the January, then you have a, a perfect... And a child eating his dinner off a piece of (laughs) cardboard. Anyway, I'm going to have to take a break here uh, before the news. We'll come back to this in the second half of the programme. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. And thank you very, very much indeed for that. Now, earlier this week, uh, Spain's Supreme Court sentenced nine Catalan separatist leaders to prison terms of between nine and 13 years on charges of sedition over their role in an independence referendum in 2017. The ruling has triggered continued protests in the region with protesters clashing with riot police in Barcelona and other Catalan cities. I'm joined now by Spain's ambassador to Ireland, Ildefonso Castro. Um, You're very welcome indeed to the programme. Pro-independence commentators have said the sentencing that happened this week is anti-democratic and punishes people for exercising their rights in civic, peaceful and democratic protest. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, uh, Spain is a rule of law country. Uh, there are rules, and you have to comply with the law. So uh, the decision, the judgment by the Supreme Court uh, about this uh, person, about these people, uh, well, it's according to our law. They have been the conviction for uh, sedition, misuse of public funds, and in other cases, disobedience. Well, I think that uh, the... Uh, the consequence of breaching the law, criminal law in this case, if you get a, a conviction, uh, you are sent to jail. I think it's quite common in, in many places. People say that the sentence was too soft. Others say it's too hard. Not too many said too soft. No, but there are other opinions. Yeah. But uh, we have to respect and comply with the decision of the Supreme Court. That's and it's possible to appeal, of course. From from this distance, from when this started off a few years ago, there seemed occasionally to be a a, a bewildering um, lack of communication with Madrid. That Madrid just came down like a ton of bricks on on people who are allowed to aspire to something. I think uh, this is a very divisive issue among Catalans and the rest of Spain. The sad thing about uh, this uh, this uh, situation is that families are split. Friends don't talk to each other. I mean, your uh, colleagues at, at work, I mean, 
everything has been in some way poisoned by this discussion. Sounds like Brexit. Mm. Uh, well, s- some analysts say say that there are a few parallelism between uh, both processes, Brexit and the and the pro independence. In Spain, you're free to think whatever you want, and you can defend independence. There's no problem. You can see every day people that are that uh, political parties that want independence. They're free. They have seats in parliament, national parliament, regional parliament, European parliament. But the difference, the main point is you have to follow the law. And the framework is our constitution and the Catalan statute of autonomy. If you are uh, within the constitution, the legal framework, it's okay. No problem at all. The problem is when you try to repeal the constitution and other laws. Well, if you take the the idea of autonomy describe if you would to our listeners the relationships between the various uh, provinces i suppose we would call them within spain well we have to let's say to give a very short explanation of our constitution right uh, our constitution is a result is the way how we got over a long dictatorship this constitution was supported by over 90% of the people, even in Catalonia. It was the highest percentage in all the country. Our constitution grants us freedom, peace, prosperity, and a lot of autonomy, let's say home rule, to all Spanish regions. So, uh, Catalonia, they have not only parliament, all full administration, education, health services, police, uh, judiciary even is the only region where the the, the powers of the uh, penitentiary system is in the hands of the of, of the of the regional government, so to say. So it's very wide uh, autonomy and the the. So can you explain to me why this rioting is going on? Well, because a lot of people don't share your view clearly. Yeah, but when you say uh, there are, this is very divisive, and let's say that are an important group of people that want independence and the other important group of people that uh, want to remain part of Spain. Uh, and you have to, I mean, to consider and respect both sides. The point is violence. Violence should be clearly condemned. It's very different to have a peaceful demonstration with thousands of people. But there were and, peaceful and vi- demonstrations so, and Madrid came down like a hammer. No. Now, are you referring to uh, the situation at present or two, two years ago? Two, two years ago. Well, yeah, the, but it was uh, the go- in that time, two years ago, uh, it was not the government who sent the police. It was the uh, judiciary, the, the judiciary, it was a, a warrant, an order to stop the, the so-called referendum. And of course, violence is not good. And I think it was a mistake. We can. Uh, it could be a, a long debate to establish what are the reasons why that thing, those things happen, why it could be prevented or not. But nowadays, the situation, the problem is violence. Violence should stop at once because you can see massive um, demonstrators yes. demonstrating peacefully, as we speak in Barcelona. Well. I mean, it's no problem with that. But it seems to me sometimes that Madrid, as it were, 
pokes its finger in the eye of those who disagree with it. No, I think it's sometimes the other way around. And one of the problems is when you say Madrid, this is not an issue of Catalonia, Catalonia versus Spain or Catalonia versus Madrid. This is a question mainly among Catalans themselves. Among Catalans, it's not, it's not so a football match. Barcelona Real Madrid. Sorry? So why not have a referendum? Why not allow them to have their referendum? Because uh, uh, according to our uh, constitution, it's not allowed. And as I said in my, in my letter to the editor, it's not some kind of extravagance or for a legal system. Uh, there is rulings by the Italian constitutional court the German constitutional court about uh, Bavaria or Veneto or even in the US with Alaska and Texas, it's clear. Territorial integrity is a part of our constitution. And a referendum uh, is not possible for that. And usually referenda could be tricky, as if you see your closest neighbors. Yes. Usually uh, uh, people try to solve uh, complex issues with a very simple question. It's more deep than that. It's deeper than that. And you should be extremely cautious about that. So, uh, according to our constitution, a referendum on independence is not possible. But do you think the response to it kind of adds to the, adds to the problem in the sense that common sense and some level of communication could have stopped, well, certainly arrested this at a much earlier stage. Well, yes, but uh, we are where we are. And uh, we have to uh, solve the situation. I mean, the, the violent uh, situation that some groups are violent groups, all the groups are not. But the offer to have a dialogue is there, but a dialogue within the framework of the Constitution. A dialogue from the prison? No, no, I mean, with political level. Yeah. I mean, look, if you, if you are convicted, you usually you serve time. If it's that serious. If people say, this is a serious, a very serious, uh, a very long sentence uh, to many years in jail. It's, it sounds very yeah, long. Yeah, it is. But the crimes, according to our Supreme Court, were also very serious. And do you believe that um, bringing home the former uh, leader there and trying him as well will lead to good relationships? I, I think that you have to comply with the law. Uh, I, I like to, to, to refer to a speech delivered by President Kennedy in September 62, when the governor of the state of Mississippi didn't want to comply with the new legislation, civil rights. And the, the speech, I think it's just at the start, at the very start, President Kennedy says, Americans are free to disagree with the law, but not to disobey it. So if you uh, refer to Mr. Puigdemont, who absconded, uh, he is right now in, in Belgium, and an euro warrant has been granted by a, a judge in, in Spain. Well, we have to wait for the decision of the Belgian uh, court about it. Would you think that's a sensible thing to do? I think that... Uh, complying with the law, it's a very, very sensible to do. Because if you don't comply with the law, uh, you cannot be safe. And, you, and the law is made to protect all people. Uh, there are many generalizations, you say, Catalans want independence. Yeah, some of them do, but many of them don't. And you don't see, people don't talk about 
those uh, groups that's apparently a majority uh, right now, according to the polls, and if you take the, the, the votes in the last regional elections, and you have to, to strike a balance, and dialogue is possible, but within the Constitution. And uh, my prime minister said quite recently, that because uh, the regional president, uh, Mr. Torra, wanted to have a meeting, and my prime minister was very clear, saying, that first, he needs to co clearly condemn violence. And then uh, dialogue is possible, within, I insist, within the Constitution. Okay. Well, listen, Ambassador, thank you very much indeed uh, for coming in to us. We will continue a conversation about this um, uh, after the break. But first, but I, I add one thing, yes, surely, yeah. uh, because one of the slogans that have been people chanting in the streets really worries me. Apparently, it's very innocent. And they say streets will always belong to us. To me, that implies two things. One, violence could come up. And second, the people that think otherwise are not entitled to walk down the streets? Not necessarily implied. Hmm. For me, it's worrying. OK, on that note, we'll take a break. Thank you again for coming in. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme. Now, uh, here's a solution for you. Maybe Boris Johnson should consult Timmy Dooley and Niall Collins <laughs> on how to get Brexit over the line. And that came from Colin. Good Thank to you. see you're in good form, Colin, wherever uh, you are. And another says, Marion Dearman is absolutely on the money. A general election won't change a thing and you couldn't get a cigarette paper between the two main parties. Complete waste of time and taxpayers' money, though. It's always good to have... Um, a general election in terms of bringing up issues. Anyway, moving on. Joining me now is the author and journalist Paddy Woodworth, who has written extensively on the Basque Country and more recently also on the Catalan crisis. Paddy, just how big is the push for um, independence? The push for independence is very big. Uh, you know, 500,000, maybe 700,000 people marching for three days on Barcelona. That's big. But I have to say, the ambassador who was just speaking to you yes. is quite right, and this is a really critical point that Catalan nationalists ignore again and again and again, that there is probably a majority in Catalonia against independence. What I feel the ambassador leaves out in a very coherent defence of the rule of law is that the... There is a backstory here, and he's also right, and this is very striking, but this to me suggests how badly Madrid has got it wrong, that yes, Catalonia, unlike the Basque Country, supported the Constitution of 1978 by 95%. So what has happened, and they had a very good relationship with Madrid, I mean, up and down, but a very good relationship with Madrid as an autonomous region for 30 years. So what happened in 2006... The Catalans, with the support of the Spanish Socialist Party, which is a nationwide party, not Catalan nationalist, they attempted to revise their statute of autonomy. And essentially they wanted two things. They wanted more tax powers, something similar to what the Basques already had, and they wanted to be defined as a nation, not a nationality. Does it matter? It matters to them. God, you know, we could at least... 
understand how fudges are necessary on this island. Indeed, yeah. indeed. So so they got this reform statute through their own parliament by roughly 80%. They got it through the Madrid parliament, and this is significant, by 60%. And then the Spanish Conservatives, who I think are a very problematic force, and as we now see, they're fractured in three, with the extreme right actually raising its head from the trenches and waving its own flags. Um, they've been within the PP for forever, in my view, within the Conservative Party. And they, they decided, I think, two things. They realised that there are votes in Spain from talking tough to the Catalans. So you inflame Spanish nationalism against Catalan nationalism. God, and this you, is like a virus going around the world, well, isn't it's, it? It is, and you get this bouncing, I think, opportunism on both sides. So the Catalans found that their constitution, where they'd gone through all the rules, is taken to the constitutional court. And here we see the beginning of what I think is the core of this problem. It's the, it's the cop-out of politics and passing it to the courts. It's the judicialization of politics. It goes to the constitutional court and they basically, they castrate the, 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 the new statute. That creates huge, huge uh, frustration in Catalonia. But if I may briefly say, something else is happening as well, and that is that the mainstream Catalan Nationalist Party, which is quite a conservative party, suddenly shifts to independence. There had always been an independence movement, but it was minority and left-wing. Yeah. Suddenly you have a centre-right party moving to independence. And I think they did this out of genuine frustration, but they also did it because they knew they were facing big corruption trials and they were also responsible for a property bubble uh, which was collapsing, and they were trying to impose very Im unpopular austerity measures. So what do you do? You wrap yourself in the Catalan flag. So I, I'm sorry, I take a slightly plague on both your houses attitude to the mainstream parties. What's really interesting at the moment is that the mainstream uh, Catalan nationalists, the old centre-right, is now more radical than the Republican left, which is being very responsible. I'd like to mention one other thing too. The violence, the violence in the last few days is completely exceptional. It's a tiny minority of the demonstrators. More important than that is that last night, very bravely, members of the Republican left, and I presume the mainstream Conservatives as well, interposed their bodies between the violent demonstrators and the police forces. And they created a cordon so that last night was the most peaceful. We would have expected last night, Saturday yeah, night, yeah. to be the most violent night. It was the most peaceful night. Right. So I think the Catalans want to pull back. I, I, I think the sensible Catalan nationalists want to pull back from open conflict, which would be disastrous. Right. Jeremy, you wanted to come in on yeah, this. Yeah, well, I, I think that's the, the, nub, the nub of it, is that the balance between politics and the law has become skewed. And that was left out of the ambassador's uh, analysis for, for, for his own obvious reasons. But well, if you he's consider, a he is, yeah. yes. But if you consider the uh, peaceful nature, by and large, to date um, of the demonstrations and of the push, if that had been managed more effectively, if that balance had been restored, you could be looking at a solution to this des desire for self determination within a fairly elaborate federalism. Yeah. in Spain. And that would be the solution to it, particularly when Catalonia itself is so divided, uh, because you know, the, the nature of the division, it's almost a 50-50 division, really, you know. And the severity of this sentencing was always going to inflame mm 
Um, and when but you consider if, two but years if ago, if a politician interfered <clears throat> on that, there'd be meal and murder because the, you have to allow the courts and the judges, presumably, uh, independence. Yeah, but are the courts independent? You know, I mean, going back to Pai's point about the, the pressure that's been coming uh, uh, on the judiciary, and, you know, going back to, you know, th- this isn't something that began just in 2017. Yeah. We'll remember the images of the ballot boxes being smashed in 2017 and how to respond to that even divided our own government and this is where it always got interesting could the Spanish question become internationalised because the EU would say that's an internal Spanish matter That's what the Catalan nationalists hoped yeah, and they've actually course. failed in that you yeah. know, basically and the, and, you know, Spanish problems have become internationalised in the past They certainly you know? have <laughs> yeah. uh, and there's also interesting historically there's been a lot of sympathy in Ireland and within Irish nationalism and republicanism for the uh, desires of Catalonia for independence. A hundred years ago, during our war of independence, there were representatives of the Irish Republic drumming up support in that region because they felt they could make, uh, you know, they'd make common cause with the Irish question. Um, You know, so it does have a wider uh, significance in relation to uh, self-determination within Europe. Yeah, well, if you take the problems that Europe has with Brexit, holy mother of the divine, if Spain broke up into... Yes, Mary, sorry. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's hugely difficult and challenging and very complex issues at play here. But um, and I'm a bit loath to use the UK and Britain as as an example. But if you think about the Scottish independence referendum, Britain accommodated that discussion and that debate. And the result went the way that the British government hoped it would. I think the Spanish government has has is is guilty of a strategic miscalculation here in terms of how they've actually approached the issue from the outset, Mm -hmm. Um, facilitating discussion and debate on an issue where, you know, the, the margins are very slim in terms of what way a vote might go. But that can really give, it can give clarity um, to how people feel. And um, and there's important lessons for Ireland here in all of this as well, because we may well be looking at a referendum on this island in the future on questions around um, Irish unity, for example, and having discussions which are comprehensive, and having discussions which can be, you know, conducted in an atmosphere which is conducive, um, you know, to very real and honest conversations about very, very difficult issues. Very difficult. Very difficult. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I agree with, with Paddy's assessment. Paddy, you wanted to things. come back in there? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of, if I may, kind of slightly reinforce that mm-hmm. to distinguish between the desire for independence and the desire for self-determination. Yeah, sure. They're different things. Mm-hmm. And if you look at all the opinion polls in Catalonia, they show generally a small minority in favour of independence, but a significant majority, around 70% very often, in favour of self-determination. Why, and, where, does, where do you cross over? Well, well that is, so you, you would say, I want my region to have the right to decide its own future, but I'm going to vote for it to stay in a relationship with Madrid. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think of it in a way, if you think of it like Spain being a, a mansion, and the Catalans and the Basques both enjoy some of the best accommodation in that mansion. These are not oppressed peoples in any normal sense of the word. But culturally, they feel disrespected. More disrespected than oppressed. Is that the description really. that they use sometimes as well, Paddy, that they're cultural nations within Spain? Yes. Yeah. That's how they yes. would describe. Yeah. And again, that is self-determination. Yeah. And that, but you see that in many parts of Spain, inflames Spanish nationalism, which has been very authoritarian in the past and is 
raising its head again. Mind you, a caller was on to say Spain is a very young democracy and the rise of nationalism is very dangerous uh, to that democracy. Michael McDill? There's a a number of points here. I mean, uh, I think the ambassador's points were were, 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 uh, typically what you'd expect from an ambassador defending a government. This is a socialist government in Madrid which is playing at the moment a strongly nationalist card against the Catalans, which is interesting in its own way. It's not the old traditional left uh, Catalan uh, relationship has been played out in a very different way. Yeah. The second thing is that, you know, um, your the Spanish constitution, which was adopted, one of its most basic kind of philosophical things was the uh, territorial integrity of Spain as a, as, as, as a state, mm-hmm. subject to uh, elaborate pr- um, uh, uh, acknowledgement of auto- regional yeah. autonomy. But, um, I mean... To, to use the analogy that Mary was uh, using with the United Kingdom, I mean, if the Scottish Parliament had no right, uh, if, if it didn't have a, an act passed in Westminster to allow it to have a plebiscite and had done that, uh, would uh, Westminster have intervened? Very, very questionable. And the difference between Scotland and Ireland is that uh, Northern Ireland has a, a constitutional and now treaty-based right to secede from the United Kingdom. Scotland does not and mm. Catalonia does not. So there's, there, there, there are interesting parallels there. Mm. There's I mean, another difference, though, between the Scottish referendum and the Catalan one, and, and that is the one in Catalonia was non-binding. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ambassador's case... That was illegal, in fact. Y- yes, I, but I, the, I thank you, pardon. It was illegal. It was illegal yeah. to have it. If yeah. it was non-binding, does that still make it unconstitutional? Because that's what the, the Supreme Court said it yes, did, is yeah. the point. And, and can, I, can I just make another point, because I don't want to be seen to be too uh, pro-Castile and uh, anti-Catalonian. The, the big mistake that's been made by the, by, by the Madrid government is that it, since it plays very well to be tough on, on Catalan separatism uh, at every level and throughout um, 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 the rest of Spain... Um, the, the the Prime Minister has stood over these uh, sentences that were imposed. And you go back to, I mean, my grandfather was given a penal servitude for life sentence for trying to call off 1916 <laughs> when the others were being put up against a wall. Uh, overreaction is a disaster. And I mean, uh, while these guys are in jail, uh, I think, you know, um, you're going to have hunger strikes or something like that will be the next thing. And yeah. it's, 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 it's going to be and a social festering. media is a huge you know, part of it yeah, now as well, uh, which is an honour now. A, 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 a one year or a six month sentence would have been so much wiser than yes, 30 suspended. years. Or, or <laughs> said, judge. Paddy was talking about, Sarah, you were, you were talking about the uh, difference between self-determination and independence. But I think the problem is that when you create polarisation, you emphasise difference. Yeah. And therefore, Absolutely. the appetite for independence grows and we saw last year on the first anniversary of the referendum one million people Mm. went out uh, into the streets of Barcelona that's one million of a population of seven million you know it wasn't at that level before well, it's been building ever since ever since the, the new statute of autonomy was shot down by the Constitutional Court. There have been huge demonstrations on Catalan National Day. Mm. Uh, it's, it's built and built and built. How, uh, how would you resolve it? Well, I would resolve it within changing the Spanish Constitution. You see, there's an assumption I felt behind what the ambassador said, yeah. that the Spanish Constitution yeah. is somehow set in stone. Yeah. 
we, we, you yeah. know, we, we reform and revise constitutions all the time and times change. And uh, I think it's very unfortunate that a self-determination clause wasn't built into the original constitution because both the Basques and the Catalans had been promised by the socialists and the communists who were the big opposition force against the dictatorship at the time. They had been promised self-determination and the Socialist Party, shamefully in my view, changed its statutes and removed self-determination as part of its compromise with the old regime. And, you know, we're, we're seeing Franco being dug up now, and I was very struck... I was struck, going to ask you about that, I uh, was very struck by the leader of Podemos, the, the new left-wing party, the other day, who said, the remains of Franco are not in the Valley of the Fallen. The remains of Franco are in the banks, they are in the church, they are in all the pillars <laughs> of the establishment <laughs> still today. And there's some truth in that. That said, I don't want to appear to say that Spain is not a democracy. It is a democracy. It's a pretty free democracy in many ways. But this, this authoritarian tendency and tendency to use the courts to shut up people whose views you don't like. I mean, but I think, what, what should they have done with the referendum? They should have said, this referendum has been declared illegal. You can have a bit of political theatre if you like. Do all the voting you like, but we don't recognise it. That's what they should have done, not sent in the police. Yeah. Um, this is with reference to what the ambassador had to say. They chided China, and yet Spain jailed Catalan officials who held a referendum. Well, I presume they're talking about um, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, Hong Kong but yeah. there can only be one winner, I think, yeah. there, yeah. certainly in the, in the foreseeable future. Uh, what is it about digging up Franco? Well, what is it about digging up Franco? What is it in having Franco there for the last 40 years in this grotesque monument topped by the largest Christian cross in, uh, apparently in, in, in the world? And in the monument where he's buried are also buried thousands of Republican and Francoist combatants who fell in the war. But certainly, I'm not too clear about the Francoists, but the Republicans, their families weren't consulted. We don't even know who they are. They're not named. They were shoveled into these galleries under Franco's body. So it's a kind of horrible piece of symbolism. And I think you have to ask, I know it's different, but you have to ask, can you imagine a monument to Hitler outside Berlin today? Can you imagine a monument to Mussolini? But it's still causing rows even in America. And how long ago was the American Civil War? They're still They're fighting very about difficult their issues monuments. These. You know, do you tear down Confederacy statues? Do you leave them? Are they history? Are they what? Do they what do they say about the? Current? Well, that's why I question whether this is the moment to dig up Franco because mm. I think coming up to an election, I, and I think Sanchez, the, the socialist prime minister, I think is very opportunist, and I keep using that word also, is mm. digging up Franco now in order to kind of take off some of the space from Podemos, the new left-wing party that has cut into the socialist vote. This is and I don't I, think it's helpful. That I was raising in the week, I was asked to speak to retired army officers here. It sounds very dangerous, but... but army Comrades Association? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but, but in any event, uh, it was a very, very enjoyable occasion. Uh, but I did, in the course of my remarks, I said to them, you know, there is, an, there is um, a sense in which you have to make a... A, a, a very cold choice as to whether you run a line across this page of history and say we're not going behind that again. We're mm -hmm. not. We're not going back mm -hmm. there. I mean, Soldier F on trial yeah. for something forty-seven years ago. When you know and I know, Marion, you've had people in this studio. 
who've done far worse things. And um, uh, no, I would doubt that anybody that has been in this studio has assured me that, that they, they haven't, haven't and yeah. that they were never a member <laughs> of the IRA. Uh, and uh, that's uh, a fact that they told me. They told I you think so. for, but I mean, to be but fair it, to the relatives of yeah. people who were killed yeah, on yeah, Bloody yeah, Sunday, but, 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 yeah, but, there is nothing worse sorry, than to but, have somebody can, can, be shot dead. I know, I know there isn't, but, but, but I really do think, you know, uh, we faced that in the Civil War here. And uh, it, on the day of the handover to Fianna Fáil, the, the Minister for Defence said, destroy all records to do with the executions and all the rest of it. By far, I think it was Desmond Fitzgerald signed that uh, order to the armed forces. He was saying, we're drawing a line under that. And they didn't go back under that. The, the army uh, switched its allegiance to de Valera's government. And we, we but 100 years on, that civil yeah. war uh, legacy is, is still a delicate issue. Yeah. So if it's only 45 yeah. years... Or, or in America, they're, they're, they're still fighting their civil yeah. war. So the question I'm, I'm saying, you know, I don't believe, I have to say, in all of this notion of a truth commission. You'll never find out the truth about most things that happened in Northern Ireland. The people who did the terrible deeds will never put their hands up and say, I did But even this where the bodies are in Spain, as a result yes. of Spain's yeah. civil war, I mean, yeah. they're still unresolved. Well, this is one of the most shames, greatest shames of Spanish democracy, that quite apart from the Valley of the Fallen, where Franco is, yeah. there are 30,000 bodies yeah. in unmarked right. graves right across Spain, and they, they, their relatives have been denied the rights by local courts and by conservative politicians to dig up their own grandparents. Well, that's that crazy, that yeah. is shameful, because we have to remember that all of the Franco is dead are honoured. There are monuments yeah. to them all over the place, yeah. and quite properly, they're, yeah. they're buried in, and they're respected in, in, the, in the quiet of night, just after the end of the Civil War, the bodies were exhumed and they were given to the relatives. And the reason the Irish government made that decision at the time is because they knew if they didn't do that then in the long term, this yeah. would be a focal mm -hmm. point and yeah. terribly divisive. Right. OK. By the way, speaking about truth commissions, I mean, not everybody in South Africa thinks that their truth commission works well, the point. at all. Mm. You know, mm. I think we look at it with kind of great admiration. Yes. You mentioned um, there's no sort of um, monument to Hitler out there, but, you know, I've been in Moscow in Lenin's tomb, was in China, saw Chairman Mao, very yeah, different experience. Um, so, you know, it just sort of illustrates it takes a long time and maybe we need to wait until everyone's going to settle down. And, I mean, there are arguments um, over how many tens of millions of deaths Stalin was responsible mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. There you go. Anyway, listen, we'll have to take a break. Thank you very much indeed for that, Paddy. All the best. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme and we have been joined in studio by Col Colin Stafford-Johnson who's a wildlife cinematographer and very shortly we will be talking to him uh, about uh, David Attenborough's uh, anticipated next series but I just don't think it would be right uh, to let the day pass so to speak without going through some of the coverage that was given to the cards who seem to have been just completely uh, abandoned by the Americans and now there's this pullback and, and ceasefire and dreadful stories in the papers today. Who was going to take up on that? I think it was well, you, Dermot. It's just yeah. remarkable the, the threads that link all of the different stories that we're talking about mm -hmm. today because, you know, you go right back with the Kurd question, their quest for self-determination. You know, even coming out of the end of the First World War, they're carving up in the Middle East, you know, that would have been their desire to get a car to stand yeah and the way they have been used and abused and persecuted uh, and now left to the mercy of turkey 
Uh, it's just another really ugly chapter uh, in their experience. And they have been uh, horribly used. And abused. And abused. But, but over and over and over again. And they were promised yeah. um, at the end of the Second yeah, World but it's War. The, it's the triviality of the way in which they were, you know, left to the mercy uh, of Turkey. And the consequences, and it's not just in relation, obviously, to the, the damage that's going to be done. The refugee problem is going to create. The Red Cross were using figures during the week of 200,000 already, yeah. and that's probably a conservative estimate. And you have the crass ignorance of Donald Trump. You know, I mean, first of all, he uh, claims to have won the, bo- the battle against ISIS single-handed, then he had to acknowledge that they did most of the fighting for him. Uh, then he uh, um, lets them down in this telephone deal with Erdogan. Then he uh, um, justifies that by saying that the, the Kurds, God help them, were no help during D-Day invasion of Normandy. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah. I mean yeah. this, uh, to have a buffoon yeah. like him... But it's uh, also the power it's government. giving to Putin as well. Yeah, you know. yeah. yeah there's all sorts of geopolitical dynamics yeah. at play here. So, so now we've got Russia implicated in this. We have Turkey, which in, to some extent draws in the European Union, um, and then you've got the you know the and NATO, and NATO, 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 NATO. Yeah. And, and and of course the US and the, the crushing cruelty that Donald Trump is capable um, of exerting is. Um, and he says it's all a piece of sand anyway. That's that was one of his comments. Yeah. Well, well, it's yeah. civilians. It's it's civilians who are the victims and the casualties in all of this, yeah. and yeah. it's children. Yeah. Uh, and there was a very good account by by a man from Leash, actually, that was um, with them. I think it was in the Sunday Indo today. Like, the level of betrayal those mm-hmm. people have suffered over and over and over again. Anyway, some, some of the details emerging would suggest that there could be war crimes uh, exactly. perpetrated. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, I, these are, these I, saw, I saw footage exactly. on Meet the Press in America of just uh, civilians just being machine gunned on the side of the People road. People taken out of their cars and mm. just executed. Yeah, but, but utterly shocking. Mind you, um, you may not like Mr Trump, Michael McDonald, but he <laughs> was elected under their system. <laughs> Whether you well, like it or well, not. I, I agree with you, he was elected, and, and I would accord him uh, the respect that that uh, involves, but I re- regard him as a, a, an absolutely shameful character, mm-hmm. and I really think he's a standing insult I, to the American I people. suppose in typical Trump style this week, he's kind of adding in a few extra scandals and kind of parallels. So we had the Jim Mattis issue where he yeah. said he's most overrated general in history. And um, <laughs> there now appears to be evidence from his chief of staff, Nick Mulvaney, that um, yeah. there was a quid pro quo yeah. for the Ukraine in terms yeah. of the aid there. And then you've got the G7 conference, which is um, oh, being moved to Florida this week. Mm-hmm. Oh, I gathered this from this morning. Change <laughs> of plan. There's another headline today suggesting he's going to tweet his way to a second term. Mm-hmm. Which is well, you see... I know that there is a complete bias among our listenership, not universal, uh, because they get very annoyed at about how uh, when anti-Trump stuff is, is said, his supporters think he's a kind of god. So I did Adolf's. And Joe Stalins. Somebody said the other day that the only member of the army that uh, President Trump admires is Colonel Saunders. (laughs) (laughs) Now, speaking of wildlife. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will move on. Indeed, we will. Uh, 